Hello and welcome to this episode of Invest Africa Insights. In recent years, the UK government has been increasingly bullish in its rhetoric towards Africa, with Boris Johnson setting the ambition for the UK to become Africa's partner of choice. In its new strategic approach to the region, launched in 2018, the UK government recognised the rapidly increasing political and economic importance of Africa, and this assessment drove the UK-Africa Summit in 2020, as well as subsequent virtual investment conferences throughout the pandemic. Um, And of course, it'll be interesting to see how this role um, evolves in the extremely turbulent geopolitical landscape we're living through now, particularly in relation um, to commodities. Uh, however, despite these big promises, UK-Africa trade investment has stagnated over the last decade at around 3% of total UK FDI. Uh, and in partnership with Standard Chartered Bank, Invest Africa has explored the reasons why trade investment flows between the UK and Africa have not matched the rhetoric and gathered insights from businesses about how to unlock UK-Africa trade and investment in an upcoming white paper on the topic. So to discuss this today, I'm delighted to be joined by Oliver Phillips, Associate Director of Sustainable Finance at Standard Chartered Bank. Oliver, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Eleanor. Great to be here. So I've given a very brief overview there of the sort of state of play of UK Africa um, trade and investment. But to kick us off, it'd be, be great to get your view of the current UK Africa trade and investment landscape and, and how it's evolved where it is now. Yeah, certainly. Um, so look, I think the, the UK and Africa sort of trade and investment relationships obviously date back to um, uh, well, date back to, to many, many years when you know most of the African countries are actually part of the, the British Empire. Um, and was, this has meant that you know, there's a strong presence of British companies uh, that have that kind of established those established roots in the region. Um, in addition, when you kind of look at exports and imports between the continent and the UK there's really that strong legacy and especially when you factor in that actually the the economic powerhouses of africa thinking you know nigeria south africa kenya and, and ghana and ghana as, as as examples have a, an anglophone sort of socio-political economic leaning however you know, the historical linkages are all in the past um, they they are historical after all and, and the uk's dominance is, is definitely coming under threat from other european countries the usa um, and china i think african leaders understand that job creation transport networks power grids um, obviously the, the sort of the green transition with you know renewable energy projects um, and digital infrastructure as well are the foundations of future growth for their economies. And they're going to be increasingly important in, in sort of you know, how they look at economic diplomacy to, to meet the, their needs. Um, the decision by the, the UK to leave the EU, though, for example, provides um, economies in Africa with opportunities to actually negotiate trade agreements with the UK um, and, and sort of seek to kind of position themselves in, in, in maybe a different light than they have been in the, the sort of the short um, or the kind of recent history at least. Um, and you know I think this is interesting that it also comes a time at a time when when can, other countries such as China, India and, and Turkey are also looking to, to conclude their own partnerships with, with countries on the continent. Um, the the pandemic I mean, COVID-19 has, has disrupted everything, but I think one thing in particular disrupted was was FDI, foreign direct investment. Uh, and I, I think you know some sort of estimates that we've looked at show that FDI decreased by around uh, 15%. Uh, which is a substantial figure to to you know for, for mainstream investors who are investing in, in Africa. Um, 
If you look at the UK, the UK reduced its age, its aid budget from 0.7% to 0.5% of national income. Uh, again, kind of, you know, uh, sort of a slowdown in some of this, this really important capital um, that, that kind of needs to be deployed into Africa. And overall, that reduction in investment and trade will require kind of, quite a concerted strategy to, to bolster trade cooperation. And obviously, you know, really importantly, uh, to me at least, uh, sitting in sustainable finance, the funding of the of, of the sustainable development goals and, and the wider sort of funding that needs to be delivered if we want to meet the Paris Agreement while still supporting uh, African countries to kind of achieve that sort of that economic development um, that's also so important. Yeah, no, and as you say, we're in quite an interesting moment, perhaps for the UK Africa trade and investment relationship. You know, we're we're quite a few years on from the Brexit vote. Now we're even, you know, a couple of years on from from implementation, and yet there has perhaps been a little bit of disappointment on that side that um, that more wasn't done for for that moment to be a real booster. But of course, as you say, we've got the pandemic happening um, in the middle of that, uh, and at the same time new trade partners increasingly looking at Africa. Um, so as, as you look at that that landscape, um, and this is something we've spoken to businesses a lot about for, for the report as well, um, what would you say are the sort of key factors that have held back UK-Africa trade and investment flows sort of in the last decade or so? Why haven't they perhaps met some of the, uh, the potential, and particularly following Brexit? So I think that kind of the the general policies on improving business and investment climates in in respective African countries can continue or and has continued to sort of impact that flow of investments. A, a good investment climate is going to, something that's going to be characterised by the ability to mobilise capital, skills, technology, and intermediate inputs that then actually allows firms to to expand. Um, and then you know, there's obviously policy variables as well that, that have impacted kind of macroeconomic stability, uh, infrastructure, human capital, and, and just general competitiveness. Um, and when you kind of bring bring these together, you can see why there are some markets that are potentially more attractive than than others, and why potentially you know some of the the, the trade and investment flows have been have been held back. Um, Couple that with with some some sort of other kind of obvious barriers. So, you know, high tariffs, poor supply chain infrastructure, um, which actually end up raising trade costs and then erode the competitiveness of goods and services, um, which you know will then in, inhibit exports and actually generally kind of stifle economic growth. And you can see some of the barriers that are that are starting to be there. I think we're going to see potentially some emerge in the future as well that may not necessarily be UK and Africa specific, but maybe will will kind of uh, impact kind of flows in in general. Uh, one one sort of obvious example is looking at what we see in sort of carbon policy of different countries around the world. The the most obvious one that's been been talked about and looked at is. Um, uh, is is around the European carbon border adjustment tax, which would mean that you know if you're importing a product from outside the EU and it's not aligned to the EU's kind of carbon budget, you're going to end up paying an, an extra element of tax when you import that product. And it's you know, it's not kind of completely out of the realm of possibility that other countries will start looking at this and we'll see things implemented sooner rather than later. And so some of these sort of newer emerging areas, particularly around sustainability, may also kind of um, 
pose potential barriers in the future. That's really interesting. I'm going to definitely come on to, to the sustainability point in a bit more detail in a moment. Um, but just on, on that point around the, the cost of um, of trade, lack of access to trade finance was, was one of the blockages that um, that businesses interviewed for our white paper raised quite frequently. Um, so given your position, it'd uh, be interesting to hear from you how, how Standard Chartered is working to facilitate access to to trade finance from a UK-Africa perspective, but also regionally within Africa. And I think this is a, you know, this kind of access to finance piece in general is really essential for, for Africa, but obviously particularly access to, to trade finance in the context that we're discussing today. Um, we've got you know, a, a legacy of about 160 years in Africa. And so it really gives us the financial expertise, the governance frameworks, the, the innovative thinking, the technology, uh, the geographical reach, but most importantly, that understanding of what it takes to do business on the ground, to get capital from where it exists um, to the African markets, which is where really where it matters most. And that's uh, you know all comes out as part of our commitment to be to delivering sustainable and responsible banking. Um, you know, we we really believe within the sustainable finance team that one of the most important things is is that concept of driving capital to to where it matters most because. At the moment, the, the places where the impacts of climate change are going to be most felt are the ones that are getting the least amount of sort of ESG related financing. And Africa obviously being one region which is you know, really kind of uh, embodies that, that trend. Um, so we, we've, got, we've set out some sustainability, sustainability aspirations, which have a number of themes that we believe are crucial for catalyzing and sustaining development in Africa. So specifically, um, impact financing. So that's really creating innovative financial project uh, products that help solve development challenges and very much driven by the impact first, uh, and then kind of the rest of the financing sort of follows to, with with that kind of constant lens of how do we solve that particular challenge? How do we deliver that impact? Uh, access to digital financial products that are safe, efficient, and inclusive. And, and obviously, Standard Chartered has done a lot in terms of digital banking. Uh, on the continent uh, as, as a clear example of that. Um, also empowering small and medium-sized enterprises. Uh, entrepreneurs are, are at the heart of creating jobs and empowering individuals, so it's really important to, to support them. And this is really something that comes up very strongly in the, the social finance thing, uh, part of the sustainable finance world. And then I guess, you know, thinking about, you know, financing uh, or facilitating commerce, is, is again really key. Trade creates jobs, it contributes to economies, enables people to connect across borders, and that will then uh, enhance intra-Africa trade as well, which I think is, is a really important thing to actually then support that sort of um, ex-Africa trade as well, to have that strong kind of intra-Africa um, trade uh, systems going too. And then finally, I think, uh, and one that's really, really interesting is, you know, around what we're doing on infrastructural project financing uh, thinking about things like affordable power and sustainable infrastructure uh, to transform lives and, and strengthen economies and we've, we've got a number of targets uh, around that um, the, the most sort of uh, short-term ones is that by the end of 2024 we're going to have committed 75 billion dollars of financing for for clean tech uh, and renewables and sustainable infrastructure 
and that's really going to be focused on markets like uh, like Africa, which is again, you know, where where that kind of that sort of uh, money, that sort of investment, can have that that greatest impact. No, it's interesting that you mentioned renewables there as well, because obviously renewable energy has has emerged as a key opportunity perhaps for, for UK businesses in particular in Africa. The UK has some competitive advantages uh, in this area. But at the same time, you referred to earlier this the increasing use of sustainability metrics and impact um, metrics in, in global finance and in making investment decisions um, can make it challenging perhaps for some African markets to compete for, for that kind of climate finance. Um, so what's, you know, it's a bit of a tricky question, but do you think there is a danger that that trend could make it more difficult for the continent to access finance or, or what can be done to sort of almost make sure that that doesn't happen and that actually it's a, it's a catalyst? I think there is kind of um, really a perfect fit between sort of sustainable finance and, and financing things in Africa. And I think the reason is that people have realised that you know, it's not just important to finance a renewable energy project. It's, it's important to finance that project in the right place. Um, we did some analysis uh, a couple of years ago now where we looked at an equivalent project. This is actually a project in, in, in India versus a project in, uh, in France. And we saw that there was a seven times increase in the amount of carbon emissions that was avoided from this, this solar project by it being in, in India versus you know, the equivalent project in France. And that's the sort of numbers that we also see when we're looking at these, these projects in, in Africa as well, because the impact in terms of taking a grid, which is not necessarily um, already starting to be greened like we see in, in European markets, but it's still kind of at the early stages, you then avoid putting in more fossil fuel power and that emissions impact is, is actually outsized for the same size of or same capacity of renewable energy uh, power generation to, to start off with. Um, the challenge is, though, really, it, it is around, you know, how do you make sure that uh, people are still seeing the, the benefits of these projects and still understanding it? And I think that's why it, a bank like Standard Chartered has such an important role to play. We've been, obviously, uh, I mentioned earlier, you know, we've got a sort of 160 years of, of, of legacy in Africa. We understand it. We're there on the ground. We, we, you know, we, have, we have branches. We have uh, lots of staff who really understand what's happening in the, the local context. And what, what really our unique position is, is then to use that to be able to bring others in with us. So one of the things that the bank has done a lot of is blended finance. Um, and, and we spend a lot of time looking at how do we bring in that development capital and bring that in to, to kind of invest in these commercial projects. So you actually take them up at scale. You change the risk dynamics and make it so that other commercial banks can, can come in and then they can finance these things in a, in a much larger size. But what's also really important about that is that the journey that this creates. So you might start off with with a, uh, you know, a renewable energy project or in Côte d'Ivoire, for example, where the first time that the project is done, 90% of the money comes from the development side, which is more focused on the impact um, and less sort of commercial in nature. And then only 10% is coming from the commercial one. But over time, as more and more of these projects have been done, as, as the banks and as the investors get comfortable with these sorts of projects, they understand the, the landscape, they understand the climate, they can spot the good projects uh, and really focus on those. You should see that that sort of ratio start to reverse itself. So you end up with actually the commercial capital being the driving force behind this. Uh, 
I think you know, that's going to be a key thing that we're going to continue to see. Obviously, we've seen lots of this this in Africa, but we really need, do need kind of that that sort of blended structure to to help bring money in, help get people comfortable. And, and as I said, I think I see a really exciting role for Standard Chartered to, to use our our footprint and our history on the continent uh, to be at the forefront of, of that transformation. No, it's interesting that you mentioned blended finance model, which obviously plays a, a, a really big role in in African markets and and actually in our paper you know we've got a we've got a keynote interview with Nick O'Donoghue CEO of um of CDC group where he also talks about um th- this same issue and, and how how you most effectively blend private capital with development finance um to to really move this uh to move investment flows forwards i suppose my my question for you is just do you you know the aspiration is that um over time, develop as you say, development finance might be able to step back, and the private sector can take more of a leading role um, on some of these these projects. Um, is that something that you see happening? Is my question really for you? Is there are there any sort of success stories where you think actually that was a really um, replicable project that that we could take forward? So I think it it is something that we we have seen happening already, and in lots of different markets across the world, where you've seen that this sort of this initial kind of uh, you know real kind of anchoring of transactions by um, the development finance community has sort of you know turned into you know, them coming in and, and playing a part, but playing less of an important part. One of the things that that Standard Chartered has really been at the forefront of in in Africa is in the in the capital market space. Um, looking at sort of bond issuances by uh, um, by African African entities, African corporates, banks, and, and sovereigns, and working out how do we use how do we bring in those development finance institutions into the early transactions that these companies do, also even not just necessarily early ones. These could be established issuers, but they could be trying a new format or changing something a little bit, and, and then actually kind of over time investors become more familiar with the with the credit they understand the story they build their own relationship with the company and then actually the the role for the the dfi becomes much much reduced and and if you look at it for as a as a kind of nice example last year we led a transaction for uh, ecobank um, group um, this was a 350 million dollar tier two sustainability issuance and standard charter was the sole sustainability structuring agent on on that transaction and a, a nice one for from the uk africa context because the the bonds were actually listed on the the london stock exchange and here what was kind of really important is that we did have that DFI angle, but actually the, the de- development finance sort of anchor investors came in and actually the, in the total context, they, they were kind of sort of around about sort of 50 to 60 million of that, of that total 350. So that's a nice example where you really see, you know, they, they played a small part. They've come in with um, enough to kind of provide that anchor and to provide that attractiveness. If they've done their analysis, their due diligence and their investing, it gives comfort to, to other investors. Who then can provide the the lion's share of, of the capital, um, but what I really see happening here is that actually it's those sustainability related transactions, whether that's project finance, whether that is um, you know a, a, a loan transaction, whether that's a, a bond or, or even trade finance as well. It's going to be how that sustainability angle that really gets people excited. It's going to get the development finance community excited, 
but also most importantly, as we see all of these kind of numbers pointing to more and more ESG-related assets under management, whether it's you know, banks setting setting targets, which we've all all set, you know, uh, ever higher and higher targets, but also investors setting up new funds and committing to put more ESG-related money um, to to work. Those are the sorts of projects that again get people looking at them. They're going to get um, people interested in them. And obviously, you know, with, with our kind of our, our own sustainability agenda at Standard Chartered, very much something that that we want to be focusing on, want to be helping to kind of uh, to galvanize. And now, just to to wrap up, I always like to sort of wrap up by by looking to the future. Although we've slightly already got there with the with you know some of these early success stories and how they could be be taken forwards. Um, but but just to wrap us up, um, what policy changes do you think? could have a really positive impact on, on trade and investment flows between the UK and Africa. What, what are you seeing that sort of excites you as an opportunity? So I think firstly, there really is a consensus that investment opportunities in, in Africa are, are kind of, uh, sort of you know, abound really. And, you know, I think five sort of long-term structural trends are, are really creating a range of opportunities for, for international investment into Africa. Uh, those structural trends are the, the youthful population of the con- continent, increasing levels of urbanization, um, the abundance of resources and, and, and depth of financial services, uh, and, and also technology, technological infrastructure. And, and those all kind of put Africa into a, a unique position, really, I think, for robust and resilient long-term investment opportunities. Uh, obviously, you know, none of this kind of goes sort of without any challenges. And, and you know, uh, I mentioned high tariffs, um, supply chain infrastructure, maybe not being as strong as it could be uh, in places earlier. But you know, these obviously do raise the trade cro- trade costs, um, eroding competitiveness, and that could lead to sort of inhibiting exports and, and, and kind of stifling growth. But I think addressing those key infrastructural challenges will will really lead to a reduction in key trade bottlenecks. We'll have a faster movement of goods through through key links and and nodes, and and obviously, ultimately, uh, lower lower transport costs. But really, you know, when you look at that trade facilitation front, the 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 signs are there, and they're very encouraging. Two years ago, African countries in what it was really a landmark trade agreement. So the, the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement, um, committing countries to removing tariffs on you know, 90% of goods, progressively liberalizing trade in services and addressing a whole host of other of non-tariff related issues such as import quotas. Um, and, and kind of more and more initiatives like that are gonna, are gonna be seen, they're gonna kind of um, take place and really, really unlock things. But the key thing I think, the, the policy change I think is, is most important is something that came out of, of COP26 last year in Glasgow, where for the first time there was a recognition in, in no kind of in the clearest way that it has been recognized so far, which was that developing countries need more support and the developed markets need to do more to, to channel funds towards them to support sustainable development and sustainable growth. And I think as that kind of continues to be done and continues to be realized, we're going to see a, a very positive impact um, on trade and investment flows, uh, and particularly between the UK and Africa. COP27 this year is, is in Egypt. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's actually on the continent. Um, very much looks like the, the focus of conversation, the real focus of the topics. 
is going to be on you know on that on how do we move money into into where it matters most to those developed market uh, developing markets even um and and i think that you know those policy changes are are only going to have a positive impact well fantastic thank you thank you so much for coming on to speak to me today no, thank you great uh, great to be here